The afternoon occasion of our worship on the first day of the week is always a very special time. And certainly, as we're thankful for the morning opportunity, there's always something exceedingly honorable about the decision of those who've chosen to gather on the second time on Sunday. It really speaks a great deal about the priority of your heart, the place where truly you would rather be than anywhere else. After all, there are many in our world who, at the very least, choose to meet only once on Sunday, and yet it speaks so very highly of you and the priorities and the choices that are yours. Before we get into the lesson tonight, let me make again one other announcement, if I might. I think I mentioned it on Wednesday evening, but certainly I asked at the very least you, you keep us in prayer. But the West Sparta congregation will have, be having a gospel meeting starting two weeks from today, and I'll be the speaker for that Sunday through Wednesday night of that week. And this coming Tuesday, day after tomorrow, uh, the Corinth Church of Christ, also in White County, is having a gospel meeting. They're having different speakers each, each night, and Tuesday will be the night I'll be there. Looking forward to being a part of that activity that week. The entirety of their theme surrounds the creation and the considerations of it relative to the church of the day today and other features much like that. And so uh, my, my lesson on that night will touch at least that subject. Certainly invite you to come, if at all you can, and be a part of that, that uh, Tuesday evening effort. I'm sure they'd be happy to have you any time that you'd want to come as well. Tonight's lesson's entitled one word, Emmanuel. And you've already noticed that Brother Colonel read from Isaiah the seventh chapter, and we'll be using that really as our text for the evening, Isaiah chapter number seven. But to build up to that, there are a few other features that I think will be very valuable to help us appreciate not only that text, but the features and the names that we shall find in it. If I were to ask the question, how many different descriptive names is there for Jesus in the Word of God? That is to say, how many different things come to your mind in which it is a particular name or reference or description that's given of Jesus? My suspicion is that number is very, very large. Those who have taken the liberty to count it tally the number at well over 300. Now, you and I aren't going to look at all of those tonight. Clearly, we would be here a very long time if we did. But there is, to be noted, I've simply listed for you a very brief synopsis. In Isaiah 9, for example, verse number 6, in that verse alone, you encounter all of these. Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, all of those are in one verse. As you turn the page into the New Testament you again can quickly recognize many names. Why don't we use just one verse and get three of them? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. That one verse in John 14, 6 then lists three of them. I've gone ahead and added two more. He said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Later in that same book in John 6, verse 12, I am the light of the world you begin to get the idea there are many references and names given that refer to Jesus by which He is called, by which He is described. Tonight, we're not going to look at any of them, but we will look at the one that was in the text that was read tonight. It's a very meaningful description, and it's a powerful name. No wonder on that slide, why don't we close it 
by simply getting ready to look at this next one. And this next one brings us to a New Testament appreciation of that same one. Now, let me go ahead and put your mind at ease. We will revisit the Isaiah passage, chapter 7, in just a moment. But for right now, would you turn over to the place in the New Testament where that's quoted? It's quoted in Matthew chapter 1, the very first chapter in the New Testament. I'd like to use a few moments and basically give some appreciation to the historical features of Matthew chapter 1. And then we will cast a spotlight very strong and very directed upon that passage that quotes that Old Testament one. And then we will see the full appreciation of what that Old Testament passage meant. In Matthew chapter 1, it begins like this. This first book in the New Testament begins to highlight the genealogical record of our Lord. He traces Jesus all the way back to Abraham. You and I have often noted in these genealogies that so-and-so begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, and so on. Well, this one, as you can readily tell, traces Jesus back beautifully, powerfully, and wonderfully all the way to Abraham. Let me ask you to notice the direction in which this is presented to us. Beginning in verse 1, "...the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham." Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. And it proceeds, of course, thereafter, generation after generation. Fantastically, the inspired writer on this occasion observes that there is a means by which you can divide this into a very, very symmetrical approach. Could I call to your attention verse 17? So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David into the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. 14, 14, 14. So as Matthew tallied it, from Abraham all the way to Jesus are 14 times 3, which would be 42 generations. With that thought in mind... I might invite you to notice, immediately following that, after tracing his lineage, if you please, verse number 18 begins with these famous words. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. And beginning at that point, Matthew gives us a somewhat brief, or at least abbreviated, discussion of the very birth of Jesus Christ. When as his mother, Mary, that's again verse 18, was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. I inserted a comment relative to the fact that Joseph and Mary at this point were espoused to one another. That is to say they were betrothed. Their marriage had not ultimately been finalized, but they nonetheless were committed to one another. It is in that circumstance that we find the following. Joseph discovered something about Mary. Verse number 19 reads it like this. Then Joseph, her husband, notice, despite the fact they were betrothed, he nonetheless is called her husband. She and he were committed to each other. They were promised to one another. But it goes on to note this. Being a just man and not willing to make her a public example was minded to put her away privately. Remember, 
He was her husband. They were betrothed to one another, but she was found to be pregnant, and he knew that it wasn't by him. After all, she had known no man. But isn't it interesting that verse number 20, it says, But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. The angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and gave him some interesting information. First, he said, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. That is to say, don't be afraid to finalize and in fact proceed to develop a home with her. Needless to say, Joseph had been rather upset. Here was the person to whom he had been betrothed, and yet she was pregnant by some means, and Joseph knew it wasn't him. In this verse, the angel put his fears at ease. It's the Holy Ghost. She was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And that thought no doubt led to a great sense of ease in Joseph. And as these next verses proceed, you notice that he did proceed to take Mary as his wife. As you and I proceed forward on that slide, might I invite you to note this, verse 21, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Joseph was told the name to give to the baby. He is to be called Jesus. Let's read on. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. As you and I close that slide, you notice again that the angel had said, Call him Jesus. And there at the bottom I've quoted that and noted, He shall save His people from their sins. And with that in mind, as you and I just read it, there was a powerful quotation from the Old Testament. This quotation, take it exactly from Isaiah, about a virgin conceiving and a virgin bringing forth a son. It is at that point you and I noticed there was an exceedingly special name provided, a description it's found in verse 23. A virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Tonight, that's the title of our lesson. What is this word Emmanuel? What does it mean? What is its significance? And to what direction can we appreciate a powerful thrust in the opening chapter of the New Testament relative to that word? May I suggest there's much to be noted and there's a powerful appreciation that can encourage your faith and mine, even in light of that little one-letter word, or rather that one word, Emmanuel. One last thing on that slide. What a happy occasion was this birth. The blessed one that was to bring the light of the world was now soon to be born. Let's journey forward in our lesson in the following way. First, let us appreciate that in the opening chapter again of the New Testament, 
it takes us back to Isaiah chapter 7. If you would, let's revisit then that chapter. Let's understand then that in that place and in that way, we shall recognize the fullness of Matthew's quotation, and we shall find in it a fantastic work on the part of God. It all begins with this observation. Inasmuch as Matthew quoted from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, it was especially in chapter number 7, the 14th verse. That 14th verse says, Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call His name Emmanuel. And sure enough, that is the very thing that Matthew quoted in Matthew one twenty three. And now, as we fill in those details, it would be of value to us to recollect the setting, the scene in which this Old Testament statement is found. Although I won't read all of chapter 7 at Isaiah, I have at least asked you to note this historical framework. It begins with this notation. In Isaiah, the opening chapter, the statement is made, that Isaiah labored in the days of Ahaz, Uzziah, Jotham, and Hezekiah. Historically, that means that pinpoints for you and me exactly during the time when Isaiah prophesied. And to be specific about it, it's from the year 741 to the year 726 B.C., at least in regard to, the, to, to, to King Ahaz. And isn't it true that Ahaz was the eleventh of the kings of Judah? But that leads me to note this. During the reign of Ahaz, there was a very difficult point and a very challenging time when there were some enemies to the very people of God, enemies to the city of Jerusalem. These enemies, in fact, had made a plan that they were going to attack Jerusalem. And I've even pointed out that we are told in this chapter who it was. It was none other than Israel and Syria. They were going to attack Judah. They were in fact going to bring great harm and devastation to it. But this chapter, Isaiah 7, brings us to realize their plan was not successful. It never came to fruition the way that they intended it. In fact, you might note this. God gave assurance to Ahaz in verse number 7 of this chapter that their plan and their attack would not be successful. And finally... You note this, the God of heaven allowed Ahaz to ask a sign of him. In essence, God said, Ahaz, ask whatever you want, and I will in fact make it so to offer you assurance that I will protect Jerusalem. Somewhat amazingly, Ahaz did not want to ask God for a sign. Now, there were other times in the Bible when individuals, when given that opportunity, did ask for a sign. But this time, Ahaz preferred not to ask for anything. But that didn't stop God. I'd like to read verses 10 and following of Isaiah chapter 7. It says, Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. And he said, Hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will ye weary my God also? Let's pause there and notice. 
it would seem that Ahaz may have failed, that it would be a bit of a temptation on the part of himself to ask this sign of God. But then you'll notice in the very next verse, Ahaz was at least somewhat rebuked. Although you seemingly have no trouble asking things of men and even weary them, you won't ask of me. You see a bit of a rebuke in that statement. But verse number 14 reads like this. Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Ahaz, despite the fact you won't ask it, I'm going to give you a sign from heaven. Notice God is here speaking. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. You'll notice again on that slide, there was a remarkable prophecy asserted here. I trust that all of us will reflect upon it and will give it some serious consideration. The God of heaven, the awesome, the amazing God, asserted here to King Ahaz, I'll give you a sign, and here's what it is. A virgin is going to conceive and bear a son. Now, all that you and I have to do is to appreciate for just a brief moment the thoroughness and the fantastic appreciation of this statement. A virgin is going to conceive. It's at this point I thought it wise to insert at least a moment of discussion. If you read at least some translations such as the Revised Standard Version, they will remove a great deal of the power out of this and they'll simply say, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son. Now, every one of us would say, it is nothing fantastic for a young woman to conceive. A young girl can get pregnant, but that's not what that word means here. The actual word that appears in the Hebrew, as I've tried to define it, literally means this. It literally means a female who has had no relations with a man. It literally means what the King James word virgin asserts. The God of heaven was saying to Ahaz, I'm telling you, a virgin is going to conceive. A woman who has known no man will conceive and bear a son. And not only that, the name that shall be given to this son is the name Emmanuel. It's at this point, again, would you appreciate the profoundness of that? All of us would be quick to say, but that cannot happen naturally. A woman who is a virgin can conceive? Well, you and I know it can't happen. No wonder that's what made it so special. This was to be a miracle. This was to be an absolute act on the part of the God of heaven. At that point, might you and I note this. This was to be a remarkable sign. Now, there have been some who have asserted, well, Ahaz never lived to see this. Remember, when this prophecy was given to Isaiah, it was going to be roughly 750 years before the fulfillment of it came in Matthew chapter 1. Ahaz never lived to see the virgin conceive and bring forth a son. But did you notice? God never told, Isaiah that, never told Ahaz he would live to see it. God merely said, Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. It was to be a sign to Ahaz and his people. In full assurance of God's promise of protection, God had already told Ahaz that the city of Jerusalem would be preserved. This was to be a far greater sign than that. It was to be a sign to the very people of God 
that the God of heaven still rules and reigns and this miraculous event would occur. At this point, let's close that slide. That isn't the only passage in the Old Testament in which a virgin was said to conceive and bring forth a son. Now, to be sure, it's the most well-known passage. But could I invite you to notice another one? In Jeremiah chapter 31, this one, much lesser known, but it speaks so powerfully in words like this. In Jeremiah 31, again, I'll not read all the chapter, but it's only verse 22 to which I will turn your attention. Jeremiah 31, 22. How long wilt thou go about, O thou backsliding daughter? For the Lord hath created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall compass a man. Now let me pause there. This is described as a new thing. And as in, 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 in definition, it is there said that a woman will compass a man. And that word compass means to go around, to circumvent. That's an interesting prophecy that there was going to come a time when a woman without the effect of a man was going to become pregnant. Sure enough, Mary went around to man because the Holy Spirit directly impregnated her. And in so doing, she compassed a man and a great new thing was done. It is with that in mind. Let's close that slide and turn to the next as we notice some implications of this. Back to our text then, both of these passages, both the Isaiah 7.14 passage and the Matthew 1.23, said that the virgin would conceive and bring forth a son, and he would be called Emmanuel. Now we're ready, it would seem, to discuss the fullness, the significance of that word Emmanuel. And this slide is an attempt to call upon us to think about it in this life. May I suggest to you it really signifies a great deal. And there's a great deal of richness and a great deal of significance behind it. Let's begin like this. The Old Testament prophets had foretold that there would be a tremendous and great deliverance. A deliverance stated in ways like this. In Genesis 3 verse number 15, remember to the seed of the woman, God said that the seed of the woman would be such that, in fact, it would bruise the head of the devil. Now, as you and I appreciate the delivery, the thought that would correspond to that, the Old Testament came and it went, and that fulfillment had never been seen. But that leads me to note this one. In Genesis twenty-two eighteen, 18, one more time to Abraham on this occasion, "...in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed." Thy seed. Now we know that began with Isaac. But of course Isaac was not the principal fulfillment of that because Paul in Galatians 3 applied it not to Isaac but to Jesus. Let's look at another one. In 2 Samuel 7, wasn't it true that in regard to David, God had informed him there was to be a great deliverer in his seed, one of his descendants. In Deuteronomy 18, this one would be related to Moses in the sense that he would be a great prophet and preacher just like Moses had been. Well, all that leads me to say, the one that was to come was to be God in the flesh. 
It wasn't just to be somebody like a David, like an Abraham, as great as those individuals were. No wonder it is in that light. Genesis 1.26 reminds us, wasn't it true there that God said, let us make man in our image? God had an intense interest in His creation. He made man upright and perfect. Here man was in this beautiful place called Eden, sinless, able to be directly related to God, but man chose to sin. Man chose to be disobedient. Man chose to be a rebel. He chose to be stiff-necked and stubborn. He chose to, in essence, turn his back on the God of heaven. How might man be reconciled to God? Well, again, you and I notice human beings are imperfect. As great as he was, Abraham had his sins. As great as he was, Noah had his sins. As great as he was, David had his sins. And that same kind of statement could be made about any of the other Old Testament worthies. How was man to be reconciled to God? Notice our next statement is this. It would require the God of heaven to take the form of human flesh. It would require this particular miraculous event whereby what is supernatural would take the form of the natural. May I suggest it sounds like Emmanuel, God with us. But let's study even further. In Philippians 2, verses 6 and following, wasn't it true on that occasion that as Paul described this very idea, he said, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. God in the flesh. Again, he was in the form of God. And he didn't think it robbery to be equal with God, but he divested himself of that and took upon himself the form of a servant and was found in fashion as a man. It sounds again like God with us, doesn't it? Let's study some more. In Hebrews 2.14, as we arrive at the Hebrew letter, here was a rather dramatic statement in which it is there said that this one himself took the form of flesh and blood so that you and I as human beings might appreciate that he was really God in the flesh and we might be able to approach him for assistance and aid and help when we ourselves are tempted because isn't it true, He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. You realize that that surely is one of the grandest matters that it can be of help to you and me. Jesus knows what you're going through. When you feel down and disappointed, the Lord knows it. His own, dis his own apostles disappointed Him. How often He appreciated and taught them, and yet there were times they clearly didn't understand. Are there times that others have let you down? Jesus can identify with you. Are there times when you realize folks have stabbed you in the back? They have treated you like an enemy. The Lord was there. He knows it well. Are there times, though, that you feel close to God? 
and your faith is strong. The Lord knows that too. He prayed all night long in Luke chapter 6. And in so doing, he could approach to his heavenly Father and rest assured that God heard his prayer. May I suggest, God with us identifies the great truth that Jesus, though he lived, of course, here upon earth, he really was God in the flesh. He can identify with our circumstances. He can identify with our temptations. It is true that He never gave in to those temptations. And He can offer to you and me the encouragement, the strength, the vitality, and the proper wisdom and insight that we too might overcome them. God with us is a great truth. Let's study even further. In John chapter 1, I would ask you to notice verses 1 through 4. Many other places in the Bible testify to us that this thought, Emmanuel, is really the event that, that did transpire. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was with God in the beginning, and without Him was not anything made that was made. At that point, look alone what we've just seen. He was with God in the beginning. He was God, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Later on, in regard to that same description in verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten Son of God. Notice that Word, the same one that was with God, the same one that was God, became flesh. Notice God with us again. Let's add one more idea to that. In John 17, verse number 4, Shortly before He was crucified. In fact, this was on that beautiful and amazing night. He was praying in Gethsemane and He prayed this fervent and earnest prayer. He prayed with respect to the glory which I had with you, God, before the world was. You see, Jesus remembered all the glory He once had known in heaven. He remembered what it was like to sit there in the greatness and the grandeur of heaven with His Father. And He remembered it. But He gave that up so He could become flesh and dwell among us. You and I should be able to cling so tightly to Jesus. To hold His hand so wonderfully. Help me through this time of trial and temptation. He's been there. He knows what it's like. Emmanuel with us, you see, is not an abstract thought about some distant God, but rather it's the thought that God loved you and me so much, He became flesh and lived like us on earth. But He lived in perfection, and He lived without making any mistakes or sins. But it was God with us. As you and I close that slide, doesn't it help us see in Acts 4, number, Acts 4 verse number 12? The sweetness of this thought. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is no other name. It's a tragedy almost beyond description. That the human family on occasion has taken this thought of God with us and mutilated it, changed it, modified it. But in so doing they've removed the power from it. God with us means the God of heaven loved all of us enough that a part of God Himself came to this planet, a planet that He Himself had made. 
He lived not only in absolute perfection, but ultimately gave Himself on the cross. He gave Himself to such a humiliating, excruciating kind of death, dying for us. All the while, the one on that cross was God with us. At that point, might we say this, more or less in conclusion, our study of Emmanuel tonight has brought us to appreciate the true greatness of how the New Testament begins. Notice in the opening chapter of the New Testament, it's God with us. That's what Emmanuel means. And these thoughts take us back to that prophecy in Isaiah 7. Seven centuries before, the God of heaven had revealed to a king named Ahaz, a virgin's going to conceive. And she's not just a young woman. She's literally a woman who has known no man. And she's going to conceive and bring forth a son. His name will be Emmanuel. The word Jesus, of course, means He shall save His people from their sins. There's only one name under heaven where you and I can be saved. It's that name Jesus which identifies Emmanuel. Are you covered in the blood of the Emmanuel? Are you and I living faithful to the call of the Emmanuel? I hope that we each are. If tonight you're not... I hope that you will appreciate that there was a monumental event when the God of heaven sent a part of Himself, His only begotten Son, that He might live upon this planet and that He might do so in such a way to make it possible for man to be saved. Jesus, that word again means He shall save His people from their sins. Have you been saved from your sins? The word Emmanuel is a challenge but a great truth. The plan of salvation, that which the Lord Jesus has put in place is this. You must believe that He is the Son of God. We're told that in John 8, 24. In fact, you'll die in your sins if you don't believe that. But you must repent of your sins. That is to say, to turn aside from them with the intent to do them no more. That repentance coupled with that belief will lead you to be ready to make confession with the mouth that Jesus, in fact, is the Son of God, a, com- a confession demanded in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, and then to be immersed, covered, baptized, if you will, in water for the remission of sins. If tonight we could be of help in that way, we would be delighted to do it. But if you have known the walk of Christianity, you've known what Emmanuel signifies, but perhaps over the course of time... You've forgotten. You've allowed that power to slip from your daily walk of life. And you've begun to live in a way that's rather disgraceful or shameful, hurtful to Jesus. You realize that God is hurt. Our sins grieve Him, according to Ephesians 4 verse 30. If we could pray in a public way tonight for sins in your life known publicly, in light of your repentance and confession, we truly would be happy to do that. Tonight, if there would be anybody in the audience and you would wish this to be a time of coming to the Lord to His invitation to the God with us, we would be happy to serve you and to do that at once while together we stand while we sing.